This podcast is supported by Red Energy, powered by the mighty Snowy Hydro, a leader in renewable energy. Red is a hundred percent Australian owned and local. Phone one three one eight zero six. Congratulations! Victoria's housing market has rebounded strongly this year. Hammers were falling once again. Buy numbers per auction are actually up on last year. Rates, of course, on hold again at 0.25%. National house prices were still rising. A man's home is his castle, and today it goes under the hammer. Welcome to Under the Hammer for Red Energy. Moving house, call local energy retailer Red Energy. And it's great to have you with us on Under the Hammer this week. I'm Jay Neild and I'm joined as always on a Monday by Ben Reid and Claire Parks from Ian Reid Buyer and Vendor Advocates. And it's all thanks to Red Energy. Of course, if you're moving house, it can be tricky, but switching your electricity and gas is easy. Just call Red Energy on 131 806. This week, we are going to review some of the figures from the weekend and discuss some of the big picture factors that affect real estate prices. Plus, if you're thinking of buying an investment property, Ben and Claire will let us know some of the key things we need to consider before making that move. Hello, Ben, and hello, Claire. How are you? G'day, I'm pretty well. Well, thanks too, Jane. Okay, so we always do a little wrap of the weekend here. Uh, The weather was meant to be fairly horrible in Melbourne, but we saw a lot of sunshine across the uh, metro and even some regional areas. So I think people were maybe caught by surprise and maybe wandered past an auction or two thinking, let's just see what is happening in the market in our local area. What's the feeling you're getting, Ben? Well, it was was really lovely being out and in and out of properties, open for inspections over the weekend. And auction numbers were up on the week prior, almost double again from the um, week before. 350 auctions were reported on by the REIV with a clearance rate of 67%. So pretty steady and stable uh, and a pretty balanced marketplace out there at the moment. So what would that compare to in the same period last year. We know things are down, but how much? Still down, but we're bridging that gap. If we go back a month to six weeks ago, we were talking about a 50% drop. Now we're we're probably 30 odd percent down on the same time last year. Okay. How many private sales, uh, which of course is not the auction, but just a deal that gets done, a sold sign that gets put on the billboard out the front privately? So those transactions are up to 969 private sales last week, which was up on the week prior, being about 800 the week before. So right across the board, we're now starting to see vendors have the confidence to be putting their properties on the market, and I'd expect um, stock levels to continue to increase. So without COVID as an influence, what's the normal sort of ratio between auctions and private sales? I know it differs between states and different areas, but what would it normally kind of be in Melbourne? Well, you'd probably be surprised because auctions do get the most amount of publicity, uh, but over the long period, they only make up about 20% of transactions in Melbourne. Oh, okay. I would have thought it would be more than that. Yeah. No, it's, it's only about that. All right. So we've got plenty of people still going on market and happy to just do private sales. Passing in, does that happen? Does it freak you out for a start when you're helping someone to sell their house as an advocate when you have to get to the point of passing in at auction? I feel like there's a negative sentiment attached to that, but can it actually be a powerful statement? Well, it can be. I mean, I guess... 
you go into an auction campaign with the plan or the idea that you will hear those magical words on the market and it's going to be selling under the hammer. Yeah. But it doesn't always happen that way. And there's a big percentage of properties at the moment that are going through the auction campaign and not necessarily going on the market and selling under auction conditions. They are passing in. But sometimes that can be a strategic thing um, directed by the agent as well. They might have just gotten to the reserve price and an auction's only as good as the underbidder. And if you know that the the top bidders maybe still got some more um, behind them and they're prepared to pay more, it might be a strategic pass in. And then they take them inside and then they hit them up with a slightly higher reserve price and you negotiate from there. So uh, it's not always a negative thing. Okay. Gives you maybe the upper hand if you really know that that bidder is actually serious. Yeah, that's right. Which, if you want to go past, uh, go back to last week, we actually spoke about that. I found that fascinating. You had some tips on uh, people, you know, making sure you really keep the information close to you because obviously letting people know some of those uh, price factors that you might be able to stretch to, it's giving away some of that stuff that could help you to bargain, wouldn't yeah, it? Yeah, definitely. And an agent... <laughs> on the day, we'll, we'll make an assessment as to how strong that buyer is. And sometimes we can have a situation where you've got one very strong buyer and one very weak buyer, and it passes in. You think, well, no, there's, a, there's a bit more momentum behind this top buyer, so you'd be best to pass in and negotiate. Okay. And how was your weekend, Claire? Who were you helping and where were you? <laughs> it was great. Thanks, Jane. Uh, I was out looking at property on behalf of clients, of course, but I guess the highlight was uh, I was out in Bayside, so uh, down near the beach. It's beautiful there. And uh, we were successful at auction, so that was a great Hooray. result. I know. Very <laughs> exciting. So our client was a first homeowner, first home buyer, uh, and we'd been looking for him for a little while, not too long actually. We'd identified some properties that were really good and this was one of them. Uh, upon our advice, we did though advise him to do what's called a building inspection, which yes. is essentially someone comes in, a qualified builder or building inspector, and they then give a summary uh, as to the construction and any perhaps issues that might be there. And although there was nothing major, should there have been something major, we wouldn't have proceeded. But there were some bits and pieces that needed to just be taken into consideration as there would be some money that would need to be put into that property a little bit longer down the line. So, so that sort of affects the final price did. that you were able yeah. to, to go to. Yeah, yeah, so we factored that in. Exactly yep. right. And um, it, the, finally, we were just talking about passings. The property actually did pass into us. There was a couple of bidders. Uh, we made sure, of course, that it was passed into us. And yeah, we came into a strong negotiation on behalf of the client uh, after the auction, which is really where we can come into our own because... Well, the agent came in and said, well, we want well over a million dollars as a reserve. And it was, you know, well, this is wrong, this is wrong, this is wrong. Or these are the things that we've taken into consideration. And we managed to get there not too much over what the property was actually passed in. Success. It was great. Fantastic. Absolutely. <laughs> do you do the high five and the uh, bottle of champagne or is it just oh, like a No champagne. We had to get on to other properties. But um, <laughs> I know the client did uh, later that day. So that's the main thing. Wonderful. Now, today on the show, we're talking about the layers of real estate. I've got this song by Boom Crash Opera in my head called Onion Skin, you know, peeling back the layers. <laughs> uh, you've got an analogy, Ben, about real estate. So thinking layers, go and hit me with it. <laughs> well, Whenever we're looking at property, I guess, and, and different property advisors you know, call this you know, different things, the top-down approach, the macro to the micro. 
I've got a couple of young girls, two and six, and I watch a lot of ca- cartoons, Disney and uh, and the likes. And and there's a great line in Shrek where Shrek, you know, says that ogres are like onions because ogres have got layers and onions have got layers. And and <laughs> I find real estate to be very similar. Is you look you look at the big picture stuff. We look at the macro. Um, and how those um, key things influence the marketplace. So we've got um, economic growth, population growth, interest rates, access to funding, all of those types of things. If um, they're negatively impacting the marketplace, right across the board, things property prices are going to be tempered. When they're in the favour of, of consumers or um, the buying public, then property prices are going to go up. But not every marketplace goes up and down at the same level. When things mm-hmm. come off in, in the more desirable areas, if you make a, a really good um, property choice, then your your home's going to be um, protected somewhat from the downturn. And when things pick up, the desirability of that location and, and property will see it increase um, greater than, than the median. So um, we look at the macro first. We then go down to the suburb level. And when we're looking at, at different types of properties for our clients, we're looking at suburbs that have this long history of strong capital growth. We want to look for suburbs that are aspirational suburbs, that are suburbs that people are wanting to move to for employment, for education or for um, lifestyle um, that are always going to be very popular um, with the buying public. We're then looking at the demographics within that suburb. You know, Is this a suburb that uh, has a high number of, of First home buyers, people that are looking at buying into the to the suburb, um, that are that are fully employed and have got the cash flow to be um, tipping money into it, and at the other end, if you've got a lot of people that are looking at downsizing, you know, so that that combination uh, generally works very well. Where we're seeing these gentrifying um, suburbs of people coming in and spending money on the assets that they're purchasing, um, we're looking at incomes and those types of things. So these are all very important from the top level in terms of identifying the types of areas and the types of properties that are and outperform the medians. And in terms of vacancy rates, the types of tenants you might be able to attract into an area, is that really worth sort of looking at too? Definitely. Yeah. I mean, that's a, a big consideration. If you're looking at an investment property, you want to be making sure that you've got the right type of tenants. You've got uh, an area that's not going to um, be subject to high vacancy rates um, should things drop off and that are all, always going to have um, lots of tenants that are going to want to come in and, and rent the property. And of course, this is general advice because like in the back of my head then I'm thinking, oh, it's hard though, because what you might have considered a really surefire area say two years ago, a year ago, we have things like international students suddenly not coming to Australia and things do change. So you do need to get really more specific advice for your particular scenario, don't you? Yeah, certainly. Wow. Okay. There's a lot to consider. So the next layer down, Claire, little pockets that we might be able to look. So we've gone from the macro, the big end, the overall picture, down a little further to the suburb level. Take us the layer under that. Sure. So once we've identified a suburb or suburbs, then it's about well, which pockets within that suburb are the most desirable and within the best position. And what we use uh, as kind of a foundation of that is, well, what, are we not, what do we not want to be near? So, for example, we don't want to be in an area that has govern- a lot of government housing. Uh, for example, 
um, in Richmond, which is a really high-end suburb. And a mixed suburb. A really mixed <laughs> suburb. Yeah. So uh, Richmond is really interesting in that some parts, you know, you will never struggle to sell anything, you know, well in excess of a million dollars. Uh, but then sometimes when you get in and around sort of the the, the safe injecting rooms and the needle exchanges and things, and things yeah. like that, the prices aren't they're certainly not as, as high. And it's really important for our clients or for us to educate our clients is that you're actually not buying the postcode. You need to be buying the right property within that suburb yep. and identifying areas that just simply won't be as appealing long term. Uh, and another element of as well is, you know, we don't really want to be around high density and lots of development and things like that. And another good example is in South Yarra. So in and around the train station, South Yarra train station, We've got streets like Yarra Street, Claremont. They're just full of really big high-rise uh, apartment buildings mm. and there's just one popping up after another. So you might be buying something that has a nice view or something like that. It's changing uh, to a level that makes it ultimately unappealing. It, sure. There's just a lot happening. So, And then in turn as well, school zones are really important. We know uh, a lot of people are wanting to to pay whatever it takes to get into particular school zones. Which has been happening for years. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. We can have an example that they can be literally two streets away from each other mm. and one is within, you know, Baldwin, for example, the Baldwin High School zone. If you're within the Baldwin High School zone and you're one street out of it, that could be a, a 10 to 20% difference in the value of your property wow. um, based on, on it being one of the most popular um, public schooling zones to get into. So mm. it's, it makes a significant difference. And when we talk about zoning too, you can talk about um, you know, uh, whether it's in a high growth zone, or a residential zone, um, whether you can put townhouses or apartments or um, yeah, there'd just be a single dwelling covenant um, over um, that area. So all of those little factors when it comes to areas within the suburb can make a big difference to your sale price. You've just given me heart palpitations though. You've just listed off a couple of things and I'm thinking like, does anyone do this without having people like you on their side? Because I wouldn't even know where to start. If I saw an address, saw something I liked, I wouldn't even know where to start to go and find that, well, okay, has anyone put a planning development application to the council? Yep. Like how many years in advance do you find out some of this info? Well, anything that is in at planning at that point in time, you can find it. It is part of the background research that we would do whenever okay. we um, look at a property. We're looking at are there any planning applications that are pending or have been approved that affect the subject property. Mm, okay. And as well, we can also look at a property and perhaps the property next door or over the street. And through experience, you can identify uh, yeah, properties or blocks of land that could perhaps fit a larger development or mm. things like that. And that's when you can potentially, if it's on the northern side, well, if that is to be developed, is that going to impact on light and things like that? So it is about really getting to understand that area, not just the house, in really looking at, uh, well, the street, which is the next It's important. So point. <laughs> when I bought my one and only place I've ever bought, I just had that thing in the back of my head, just find the worst house on the best street. And I think I mentioned a couple of episodes ago, drove up to this little place, saw the sunset over Ballarat and just went, yep, totally, like crappy, crappy, old, unrenovated house, but fantastic view. So I was sold. Is there still something in that? The worst house in a great street? Surely... Really? <laughs> yeah, that still applies. Does it, Ben? Definitely. I mean, you, you, the thing is, you can't improve the location. 
right? And location is everything. You know, they've said it on the real estate shows forever. Location, location, location. Yes. That's the most important <laughs> yes. thing. And it's important to keep in mind that if you're making improvements to a property, if it costs a dollar to lay a brick, then it costs a dollar to lay a brick in the best street as it does in the worst street. Okay, that's a really good way to look yeah. at it. Okay. So yeah. any, but the improvements that you make in a fantastic location will certainly outperform and your money would work much harder for you in the best location. So what else do we need to be aware of when it comes to the street at that level? I guess things to avoid, um, main roads, streets that are affected by power lines or um, directly onto train lines, those types of um, streets will will certainly underperform in terms of of price growth. But you want to look for a really lovely street and the the best streets are generally wide tree lines. You've got a a high percentage of owner occupiers. Um, We don't want to be near uh, high density developments where uh, you're going to have tenants that are turning over um, regularly. You, know, these, you often see these streets that they've forever got a, a mattress or a, a, a couch out on <laughs> yes. the street. You know, so you, we want to be in owner-occupied um, places where people are really looking after their homes. Do you do something as basic as scan the mowing situation in a street? Because I noticed that our neighbours will mow our verge or we will do theirs. And I noticed the other day, it's like, wow, our street looks really tidy because people obviously just help each other out. Something as simple as how many front lawns are mowed, is that a good indication? It can be as simple as that. Okay. Interesting. Okay. So another level, uh, Claire, the features of a property. Yeah. Once again, really important. So this is when we're getting right down to the micro level, if we want to go back to that analogy or the the centre of the onion. Position in the street is really important. Is it on the high side? Is it on the low side? Is it what way does the rear of the property and the front of the property face? What's the orientation? Block size and your land size is obviously really important. And if we're looking at apartments, we want to be really clear on what properties within that group, that block, are inferior and superior. And that's where we can really advise our clients as well. So, for example, if you're you know, there's a block of 12, for argument's sake, and this is one is on the ground floor and it's got the side driveway where, um, you know, the other 11 residents drive down and they're driving past mm-hmm. a bedroom and a living room window. So that's less appealing than perhaps the top floor, which has a balcony that overlooks the trees. Sure. So yep. it's about pinpointing the the property within that block as well. So it's really getting down to the nitty gritty. Once we get inside the house, things like natural light, how, you know, the ceilings, you know, the ambience of it all, is it, a, is it a really nice feeling home? Does the, does the floor plan work well? Are the, is the bathroom positioned in, in a way that's convenient to the bedrooms? Um, are you walking directly into a lounge room, which maybe isn't as appealing as coming into um, a, a hallway? bedroom sizes, all of those types of things. Is it a floor plan that if you are planning on doing renovations, can you easily renovate, knock out a wall or extend on this block? Um, as Claire touched on before, orientation. You know, a north-facing backyard is ideal because it takes in um, most of the natural light throughout the day, yeah. whereas a south-facing one's really cold. Um, yeah. And, and even it can be a matter of inspecting it at different times of the day as well, because in a south-facing blocks, um, you go at, at some point you are going to get some light, but in other points of the day, uh, it might be very cold and dark. So all of these yeah. types of things are, are certainly worth considering when you're going into properties. And is that 
quite kind of annoying, though, if you have someone that you says, oh, would like to inspect it at 8am and at quarter past 12 and at 7.45 in the evening to see where the sun sets. I mean, do people really go that far? Or is this maybe just driving past at different times of the day and night? Yeah, it's the latter. <laughs> yeah. or, or maybe organising your second inspection at a different time. Sure. Or, or even just thinking about it to be like, right, if I was in here and the sun's going to be over there, how, how's it going to feel in this room? Um, I know someone who rented a house once during the summer school holidays break, didn't realise they were literally like, you know, a back fence and half a yard away from a local school. And the noise, yeah. as soon as the classes started up, they're just like, I had no idea I was living in a screaming yeah. schoolyard. <laughs> and if you don't think that agents are organising their open for inspection times around these things, then mm-hmm. you've got another thing coming. I love this, the psychology <laughs> of the agent. Uh, ongoing costs, I know, you know, some people will say, oh, there's this great apartment, blah, blah, but like, how do you know how much it's going to cost you down the track? It's not like just buying a house and all you've got to worry about is water rates and you know, mm. insurance. Water rates, insurance, owners' corporation council fees are all really important things to factor in. Uh, as, as we say, they are ongoing. They're all outlined or should be outlined within the contract of sales. And it's important to understand what they look like in comparison to your borrowing capacity and your mortgage because you want to factor those in as a month-by-month or quarter-by-quarter fee. And can there be surprises when it comes to that? You know, you hear about places that everyone shares in the maintenance of the rooftop garden and the green walls. Can that get expensive? Yeah, it can, particularly with new developments where um, some of these things maybe hadn't been considered or there might be some defects that come up unexpected. They then put in special levies on top of your normal um, owner's corporation plus your rates and all those Mm -hmm. types of things. So if you are going into something that's got an owner's corporation or um, shared land or buildings, then um, expect the unexpected at times. And I guess all of this advice is also relevant for people who are looking to buy to invest, but also to live in themselves. Yeah, definitely. Of course, you are listening to Under the Hammer. I'm Jay Nielden. I'm joined by Ben Reid and Claire Parks from Ian Reid Buyer and Vendor Advocates. And we are doing it all thanks to Red Energy. Moving is hard, but switching your electricity and gas is easy. Call Red Energy on 131806. So capital growth versus cash flow. Talk to me, Ben. <laughs> well, it's the age-old argument, isn't it? That um, if you're buying an investment property, there there are two main considerations, and that is how much money is, have you got coming in? What's the cash flow of the property look like? And then there's the capital appreciation. Is the asset going up in money over a period of time? Um, and there are two different schools of thought. Do you buy for cash flow and have the money coming in, or do you buy for capital gains? Um the cash flow people will, would say, well, it's better to um, be buying for cash flow because you've got more money coming in than you've got going out. Mm-hmm. And, and, um, and definitely you need to make sure that if, if you are buying an investment property, the cash flow situation needs to be such that you don't get yourself into a situation where you can't afford to hold on to the property. Um, so there are certainly some really strong arguments for having a strong cash flow um, investment. Okay. The flip side of, of um, the cash flow argument is that most um, properties which are high in cash flow tend to be slower in terms of your capital gain. Okay, so the more I'm going to get on a monthly basis, potentially the less it's going to grow over time. It tends okay. to be the case. It's it's very difficult to find a property that's very high in cash flow and also high um, growth as well. They're the unicorns that people yes. think that they're going to sell you might not pan out. Okay. <laughs> um, so... 
where where we tend to to fall in terms of the cash flow versus um, capital gains argument is that in in that battle, I would always or we would always um, tend to prefer to go um, to the capital gains. That's really where um, significant wealth is gained over a long period of time, but you need to keep in mind the amount of money that's coming in and the amount of money that might be going out. Mm. My sister actually has more recently changed a bit of a career change into rental. And I said to her the other day, got a friend, she's got a house for sale in the Adelaide Hills. After a year and a half in in real estate, she was like, "Mm, I'm not sure I'd buy anything that wasn't brand new because she's seeing all this maintenance and the long term. So I guess if you're looking at that for the capital growth over a slower, longer period, do you have to be careful that you know about what your maintenance fees are going to be, that you're factoring in, well, we might actually have to redo the air con in a couple of years or we're going to have to repaint? Like it's the long game, that approach, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And for for newer properties... Often a lot of those things are unforeseen as well, that you right. might have failure of waterproofing, for example, or you might have um, uh, some structural issues that they didn't see. Whereas with the, the newer, uh, sorry, the older established homes, then you know that at some point in time you're going to have to paint. Or um, Interesting. Okay. Because it was sort of like she said, oh, but no, as long as it's new, thinking there's not going to be any issues. So not always something you can count on. Not always the case. Okay. Yeah. I think it's easier to... Um, project or foresee the amount of money that you might need to spend on an older home than you will on a newer home. And in general, the amount of money you're going to earn from rent, like you hear stories about young people, they get in early, they buy little places, one more, add another one to the portfolio. Are you ever actually going to become super rich from the rental only? Like you need a hundred properties and I just need to be making this much from them all per week. Is that a kind of surefire way to wealth or do you have your sort of... Well, concerns about that approach, well, Ben. That's when it comes back to cash flow versus capital gains, is that with the amount of money that you spend to get into an investment property and the return with your cash flow, it's very difficult once you pay taxes and outgoings and all that sort of type of thing to really significantly get ahead purely based on the income of a rental. Right. So if you had a bank account with all the rental income and then you compared that with perhaps just a capital growth over yeah. years. Compared to compared to an asset that you might buy for $500,000, and if that's increasing in value at 7% year on year, after 10 years, that property is worth a million dollars. Now, that, yeah. is, that is a significant growth um, in price and a significant contribution to you becoming yep. independently wealthy. Um, so the, the upside of a, of a high increasing capital asset is much more beneficial um, than the cash flow side of things. So something I'd also like to note as well is that it's hard to turn a cash flow positive property or cash flow focused property into a high growth property. But you can actually improve on the cash flow that you're earning on a high growth property. So what that means is that you can add value, then in turn increase your rent by subdividing, or firstly renovating or adding value in that respect. You can subdivide, you, you can develop. So mm. you've got a, that little bit more flexibility as well. We don't see that as much on the high cash flow driven properties. So Ben, to wrap things up, if we're looking at investing, 
Give us a few of the pros and the cons that we should really have as top of mind. The first pro for investment properties is that there is strong financial performance and residential property has outperformed all other investment types over the last 20 years, including stocks. In Melbourne, over a 40-year period, we have averaged an increase of 7% year on year. So that is significant. So it is a it is a high growth asset. So even while things may be a little topsy-turvy here, you're looking at the very sort of longer term trends. Yeah. Real estate's not a short term thing. It's, a, it's the long game. Okay. Okay. And do you need to be aware of things like tax, <laughs> the advantages, the disadvantages? I mean, that's all a, that's a whole minefield unto itself, isn't it? Yeah, and that can be another another um, pro is that you've got things like depreciation, negative gearing, offsetting your income, those types of things. So you need to get good financial advice, but under the right structure, um, it can certainly assist you in paying less taxes. Okay, some of the downsides. So the entry cost into purchasing real estate is high in comparison certainly to other asset classes such as shares and things like that. There's government fees, there's agent fees and things like that that need to be taken into consideration. Plus your ongoing costs, as we touched on before, so your insurance, your rates, any maintenance and, of course, your mortgage repayments if you're borrowing money. So it's really important to factor those things in and be clear around what you are going to be spending as an outgoing each month or each year so that it doesn't actually become a con, it just becomes part of the process. Sure. And what are the sort of percentages of people who do invest in Australia? There's a lot of talk about it at the moment. So are we talking a lot of people? So around 20% of Australians have an investment property. Okay. Um, but if we look at the, the cons, I guess, of, of um, going down the real estate path for your investment plans is that because of the high entry costs, it can, and it is a long game, it can be difficult to diversify once you do get into property. If we look at those numbers of the people who do invest in property, less than 10% of those ever get past owning more than two investment properties. So it is a big amount of money that you're looking at putting into it. Um, so unless you've got income coming in that continues to allow you to invest and, and generate um, more opportunities for yourself, um, uh, it can be difficult to diversify. Okay, so that image I have of this person who's just buying up properties left, right and centre and then renting them out and making vast amounts of money is actually not really applicable to most people who invest. No. <laughs> now, guys, we're nearly out of time, but I did want to get your uh, comments on a little article I noticed popping up in my social media feed over the weekend uh, from the Herald Sun titled Coronavirus Massive Melbourne Rent Price Drops as stock piles up. And this included, you know, quotes like, uh, Melbourne's rents are being slashed by up to $600 in Melbourne CBD and trendy inner city suburbs in which agents have branded a golden opportunity for tenants. So I see something like that and we've just talked about investing and I go, panic, uh-oh, there's not going to be enough people to rent my investment property if I've got one. Do we have to look a little bit further beyond the headlines there, Ben? Because $600 bucks in the CBD of Melbourne, that could be a lot or it could actually not be that much at all. Well, if you do you know, dig a little bit deeper into the article, you will see that that example of $600 is one particular apartment that w was in the CBD that was rented at $1,500 a week um, that is now being advertised for $900. So, you know, right at the pointy end of the type of property that has been affected the most. Mm. Um, and when they are talking in this article 
um, rental vacancy rates in Melbourne, they are specifically talking the CBD, not the, the city of Melbourne. So right across the board, we've not seen these types of drops. Um, and the CBD, which has uh, increased in vacancy rates, I think by somewhere between 9 and 10%, has been the hardest hit area. Um, and that is due to students and... Um, uh, International travel, yeah, I guess, in, in, is international huge travel. Impact. Yeah, international yeah. students and workers and those types of things. So, and imagine you know living in a CBD one bedroom or two bedroom apartment during these lockdowns is really hard. So, a lot of people have have looked to move out, mm. um, back in with parents and those types of things, or in with their spouses um, to have a little bit more space around them. And as the article points out, there is a rise in Airbnb properties coming back onto the market because, of course, no international travellers. There goes that business plan. So now being offered for longer term rental and even boutique hotel rooms. So I guess there's a few bargains to be had out there if you want to be right in the middle of the CBD. But if you're expecting uh, flow on drops like the $600 mark they mentioned, possibly not going to happen in the more stable outer suburbs. And that's where when you're looking at considering an investment property, it's so important that you buy the right type of investment property Mm -hmm. that's not going to be subject to these big drops um, when the market does toughen up. Okay, well, we're going to leave it there. But next week, there is just still so much we need to get through. And I know that on your website, you've actually got some really handy uh, little download that people can maybe check out between now and when we talk next about uh, some of the traps exposed, a free booklet via the website, which is... Uh, at ianreid.com.au. Head to our website. If you're thinking of selling, all the best advice is in our booklet, Fatal Real Estate Traps Exposed, uh, which you can download there for free, but we'll talk about some of those traps next week. Thanks, guys. And, of course, if you want to get hold of the team, head to that website, the Ian Reid Buyer and Vendor Advocates website. I'm Jane Neild, and I've been with Ben Reid and Claire Parks from Ian Reid Buyer and Vendor Advocates. And all thanks to Red Energy. Moving is hard, but switching your electricity and gas is easy. You can call Red Energy on 131 806 today. Thanks, Ben. Thank you. Thanks, Thanks, Claire. Thanks, Jane. Thanks for listening to Under the Hammer for Red Energy. Moving house, call local energy retailer Red Energy. If you enjoyed Under the Hammer, then check out the other podcasts in the Red Energy Lifestyle Series. For the foodie, enjoy Tuesday with Ash Pollard. Really, the people around here truly lived farm to table. And so that's kind of how I've been cooking. And I know it's trendy now, but it was necessity back then. Moving house, call local energy retailer Red Energy. Thanks for listening to Under the Hammer, part of Red Energy's podcast lifestyle series. Available on your favourite podcast platform and the SEN app.